0: Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, thanks for being in here as we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapters 8 and 9. And you remember in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is giving us three sets of examples that are proof that are proof. Remember, Matthew has a reason for listing or giving us these examples. He is proving to us that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, the expected Messiah. You remember in the beginning chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the whole genealogy tracing Jesus' ancestry. Uh, from Abraham all the way down in David and so on, all the way down to the present time, his present time, to show that Jesus is the coming Messiah that who was promised. And so, in chapters eight and nine, we have three sets of examples. We have three miracles and a teaching. And then we have another set of three miracles and a teaching. And then next week we'll talk about the fourth set of examples. Four, three miracles, one within the first. So we have actually four miracles, unless you want to count the calling of Matthew a miracle, which you may or may not want to or whatever. And so that would be the fourth example. After that example and after that teaching of those uh, four miracles, then Jesus goes into another sermon in chapter 10. And so that's what's happening here. And as we look at this, these examples, not only the ones this morning, but all three sets, but especially the ones this morning, I think, accentuate This particular verse. Remember the outworking of God's promise in Genesis 3.15. We see that, I think, more particularly this morning in these examples. After Adam sinned, Genesis 3.6, and he ate. He sinned, he rebelled, he refused to obey God. After that, God, not being caught off guard, but God knowing before the foundation of the world... God pronounces a curse upon Satan, upon the ground, etc. And he makes a promise in the midst of that. And in Genesis 3.15, you remember what he says. He says, there's coming a Messiah, a deliverer, called the seed of the woman. Someone is coming who will irrevocably and forever undo the effect of the fall And he says to Satan, as to you, your head, he will bruise or crush your head. He will overwhelm you or break you. The word bruise means to overwhelm, break, to crush you as to your head, your authority. Oh yeah, you're going to injure him on the heel, but he's going to crush your authority. And so Jesus, the Messiah rather, is promised. To undo the effect of the fall. And remember, the reason for the fall, and as Brenda and I were talking this morning, the reason for any and every relational difficulty, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the problem, no matter what what anything, the only thing that touches relationships in a negative and detrimental way The only thing that touches relationships in a negative or detrimental way is sin. Nothing else. Sin is the root of any and every problem, difficulty, relational, strife, strain, or whatever. There is nothing in all the universe that can strain or stress relationships Except for sin. That can certainly pressure them and cause temptation to occur. But sin is the only thing that brings about the breaking, the dissolution, the weakening of relationships. And so Jesus has come, as promised in Genesis 3.15, to be the one who will take authority over the authority that Satan has Gain. How did he gain authority? Sin in humanity caused Satan to have authority over humanity. And to the place, even as believers, even though we've been delivered from the authority of Satan, even as believers, when we sin, our sin gives occasion to Satan to have ability in us, which he would not have if we do not sin. He has the ability to deceive. He has the ability to lie. He has the ability to manipulate. But none of that can touch us in our souls, in our minds, in our affections, in any area of us whatsoever, until or unless we sin. Then all of that attack All of that work of Satan then becomes personally affecting me only through my sin. Amen? So we have to remember... What sin does and what the purpose of sin is. And so, sin is the great work, if you would, great, not in a wonderful way. The great work of Satan. So, what does 1 John, and we want to look at these verses today within the context of Genesis 3.15. He will bruise you as to your head, your authority. And then 1 John three eight. Remember the second part of that verse. What does it say? We quoted last week. 1 John 3, eight. For the Son of God. I'm sorry. For G. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. To what? Destroy the works of the devil. He has appeared to destroy the works of the enemy. This is why Jesus has come. So we'll see three this morning, three examples of this, where Jesus' authority will be destroying or overcoming or breaking the authority that Satan has over God's people. So... Let's go ahead in chapter, what chapter are we in anyway? I forget. Chapter 9. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 23 to 27. The first miracle in the set of three. Sometimes I get confused, as you can tell. The first miracle, verses 23 to 27, is an example that Jesus is crushing or bruise Satan's authority over nature. Satan has authority over nature. Now remember, let me say one more thing about Satan's authority. All of it is within the context and within the rule and permission of God's authority. This does not mean that Satan has unilateral authority that competes in any way with the authority of God. It is God who is the sovereign ruler, and it is God, because of the fall, because of sin, who has given Satan allowance or permission, if you would, to have authority. Remember that word? Satan has what? Demanded permission. To sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Who said that? To whom did he say it? And what chapter of Luke? 22. And so you see, Satan has demanded permission. Remember Job 1. God gives Satan permission to touch Job. Always remember that. Whatever is going on in our lives, God is behind it, regulating and overseeing it all, even allowing Satan to be attacking us. But for our good and for his glory as we submit to him. So the first miracle, verses 23 and 27, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. And by the way, in Luke it says, we're going to the other side. How many of us believe that we are in God's ark, gospel ark, and we're going to the other side? Amen. We're going to the other side. Jesus didn't say, oh, I hope we get to the other side. He didn't say that. Jesus says this, we are going to the other side. Do you hear that? Believers, do we hear that? We are in the ark of God, Jesus Christ. We are sailing the seas of this world. And we will get to the other side. Why? Because we're in Christ, who is already on the other side. So let's see it in a larger context than just a boat and water. And they're in the middle and a great storm arose so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him up saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Remember, carest thou not that we perish. Remember King James. I like that a little better. And he said to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? In other words, I am here with you. Where's the fear? I am here. I am here. Where is Jesus in your storm today? Where is he? Do you really know? Do I really know? He's here. I'm here. Whatever storm, I am here with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am here with you. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Remember, after his teaching in verse twenty-two, Jesus decides we're going on the other side. We're going to the other side. We're leaving this area, and we're going across the lake. And during the storm, during the passage, Jesus falls asleep. He's tired. Remember, we're talking about a human being here, and he's tired. He falls asleep, and then as he sleeps. As Satan believes that he's a, see, Jesus is asleep and doesn't know and isn't there to be ready to take care of him. You see, Satan loves opportunities. Let me ask you this question. How many of us, and I say us because I think all of us have from time to time experienced this and perhaps some of us are in the middle of it already today. How many of us have ever felt that Jesus is asleep right now? And he doesn't know what's happening. And he's not awake and he's not watching and overseeing. Anybody ever get that sense? Is Jesus asleep? Right? Things are happening. Things are going on. I don't see any resolution. I'm afraid my boat's being going to get sunk. Jesus, are you sleeping? Wake up. Is Jesus asleep? Well, he is physically here. But is he asleep in our lives? The Lord never, what? Slumbers nor sleeps. He who watches us is always awake. His eye is ever on his children. It may seem as if he's asleep. And he may want it to feel as if he's asleep. To draw us into himself in a greater way of trusting and looking to him. So the winds come up. And in Mark 4.39, Jesus, Mark records Jesus' words to the storm. He stands up. You get the picture. The, the, the boat is being back and forth, slashed back and forth with winds and waves. These men are fishermen. These men stay on the lake as their occupation for the most part. Many of them are. They're used to storms, but this is an unusual gale. This is not the normal storm. This is a deliberate attack from the enemy. We're going to go through storms. And Jesus, I can just see, the boat is going back and forth and winds and whatever, stands up and maybe holds on to the mast of the boat, and and as this thing is tossing around and whatever, and he says, be muzzled. The word is be muzzled. Jesus is muzzling an animal. He's speaking to a being. Be muzzled. He's speaking to someone here. And when he says be muzzled, and the enemy's authority and activity is muzzled, what happens? The winds and the waves cease. Cease. You see, Jesus has authority over Satan's authority to use and to manipulate natural events against us and against the purposes of God, opposing the purposes of God, to show that, in fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus are not that effective To challenge our faith, hath God said, hath God said, you're going to get to the other side. Hath God said, I am with you always. Hath God said, you're forgiven of all your sin. Hath God said, this sickness is not unto eternal death. Hath God said, I am your provider. I am your shield, I am your sword and your buckler. Hath God said, do you hear it? The winds and the waves are Satan's way of challenging us as he did in Genesis way back when, when he said to the woman, hath God said? In quelling this demonic storm, Jesus demonstrates that. That he has authority to crush Satan's head or Satan's authority over the use of anything of the nature in nature to oppose the purposes of God and to assure us that we will get to the other side of the lake. But there is a proviso here, and I want to mention the proviso in Acts chapter 27. You remember that story, Acts 27? There is another man in a boat, and there is another storm, and they're about to crash and all that, and the people in the boat are about to jump overboard because they don't want to drown, and what does Apostle Paul say? Look, the Lord has appeared to me tonight, and he said this, stay in the boat. If you stay in the boat, the boat will be wrecked, but we'll all be saved. What is Satan wanting to do with these winds and these waves to our faith? Cause us to jump out of the boat, if you would. And so we are saved by grace through faith, which is God's gift. But the faith that God gives us to save us is the very same grace that God gives us to sanctify us and to keep us all the way through. There is a means that God uses to apply and make good and manifest and bring to fruition his work of grace. What is it? Faith. Faith is God's gift to us. What verse did we just quote there? Somebody said that. Who who said that? For by grace are we saved through faith. Where is that? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Lest any of us boast. It is the gift of God. And so you see, I am kept in this boat. Not by my personal tenacity and bravery. I am kept in this. First, I'm brought into the boat by God calling me. And my response by faith, which he has given to me to respond to him in an affirmative way. Even my response to say yes to Jesus is not on my own, but it is a gift of God to say yes to him affirmatively. And then I am kept in the boat, not by my own tenacity and works, but I am kept in the boat by that same faith that has brought me into the boat, producing good works of constancy, obedience, tenacity or whatever in christ don't get out of the boat you see the temptation is to either none of us are tempted to not trust god at all are we but you see we're tempted to look elsewhere for a little bit more help than god is bringing us in We we begin to look elsewhere for maybe a little hint here and a little hint there. And and I need a little assurance. So I'm going to ask, maybe I can look over here. And, you know, if it does this today, if the sun shines between one and two, then I'll know that God. I know I'm the only one who's ever done that. (laughs) Now, if God gives you that as a affirmation, that's fine. But most of the time is probably an idolatrous thing looking somewhere else for something beyond the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the giving of his Holy Spirit to us. Amen? Just a little something extra I need today. Now, some of you have been in my office. I will often pray for persons and circumstances that are difficult, and I will ask God, would you give them favor by giving them and then a blessing? Of showing them and several times they'll call back and say, oh, I was going home and the Lord did this or that or the other. And so I think it's appropriate to do that, to ask. But we have to be careful that we not be putting our faith in those kinds of circumstances. We put our faith in the one who died, in the one who rose, in the one who sent the Holy Spirit In the Spirit of God who is in us to take us all the way across, even if we never ever have one moment's revelation of anything of a benefit or a blessing here on earth. Amen? We have enough because we've been given the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The second miracle, verses 28 to 34. Jesus crushes or bruises Satan's authority over man's will. Ah, here it is. The great battle of the will of man. Now, we're not going to get into that, but we have to be careful to make a decision, or distinction, rather, between the will of man and the decisions of people. Sometimes when we talk about man has free will... We think what we're what we're really saying is man has the freedom to choose. And we do have a freedom to choose. But the will here is a little different than that, and you'll see in a moment, hopefully. And when Jesus came to the other side, they did get to the other side, by the way. And the reason I know that is because I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for movies. Thank God for movies and for fiction and for all of that. Thank God. No, we know because we've read the Bible and we are here today. Evidence what? That he did get to the other side. (laughs) And when he came across to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, "What What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, if you cast us out, they knew what he was going to do. Send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus, and they saw him, and they begged him, Get out of here! You're ruining our business! We don't need you! Okay. Satan's attack didn't work. Through the natural. Well, let's go do something else. You see, do you see here? Satan never gives up. Until we have our new bodies, we will be relentlessly attacked by the enemy. It is not abnormal. It does not always mean that there's something wrong, although there could be. We may have given him opportunity. It is the way it is as long as we live in the kingdom of this world, and he is a God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We're living in the realm of the enemy, 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies in the authority, or as King James put it, in the lap of the evil one. So two demon-possessed fellows come up. The word is translated demonized, which has to do with the ability of Satan to control a person's will. There's a very instructive verse. I don't know whether it's in your your notes or not, but 2 Timothy 2.26, do you see that? That God may grant them what? Repentance of those who have been what? Captured by Satan to do his will. Satan is the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4, in whose case the, Satan has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they may not see. The glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. Blind people cannot see. We are dead in sins and trespasses. Where is that? Ephesians 2.1. For you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember that? And by nature, verse 3, we were children of wrath. Romans 5.8 and 10 says that we were helpless and weak. We were enemies and we were sinners. There is absolutely, unequivocally, completely no ability at all, and even no spiritual God generated desire to call. Upon the name of the Lord, which we have to do to be saved, unless and until the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts to call us into Christ by the indwelling of his spirit being called born again. And at that point, he takes our hardened, stony heart and will and he changes it into a malleable, fleshly heart that will say yes to him. God must change our hearts resistive will otherwise we will never call upon the name of the Lord and we will always be condemned now some don't like that I say thank God because there is no way in heaven or in hell that Peter Davidson would have said Jesus save me and so we cannot say I found Jesus that is never the case he found me for God first loved us. Remember First John 4. Amen? Now, we have no ability in ourselves before Christ to decide for right or wrong. Right meaning righteousness or wrong, unrighteousness. All we have is an ability to decide from one issue of unrighteousness to another issue of unrighteousness before we were born again. That's the will we have, or the right, if you would, or the decision power we have. Because we're captured. We're in jail. And so all I have as a captured person in the cell of sin is today I'm going to sit on the left side of the cell. Tomorrow I will decide to go to the right side of the cell. Thursday I'm going to sing a song in the cell. The problem is I'm in the cell all the time. I can't, Steve, get out of the cell until the Son of God has won the day and has the key. Remember, I had the key of heaven and hell. And he puts the key of his salvation purchased at the cross into my cell. And he unlocks the door. And then he says, I'm coming in. I'm coming in. And we say, come on in. Right? That's how we got saved, right, Phil? There's no way I could break out of this cell. There's no good work. There's only one lock. John 10, 7 says what? What does John 10, 7 say? What does Jesus say? I am the door. I'm the door to your cell. And so Jesus shows that these demonized people, they're under a control of someone else's will. They have no ability at all. And you notice the man isn't calling out to Jesus. Who's doing the calling right here? Who's shuddering? It's the demons who know. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. And he says, what do we have to do with it? Why are you here before the time? We know you're going to, you know, do all this destruction and cast us into hell at the end of the age. But why are you doing it now? Because, you see, everything that Jesus does during the incarnation all the way when he gets to the cross, everything he does is as a consequence of his obedience to the Father at the cross. All of this is a manifestation of his obedience that is coming. In fact, <clears throat> I believe, my personal opinion, my personal opinion is this. chapter In, in Matthew, chapters 1 through 4, and then chapter 26 to 28 are the only absolute necessary chapters. One to four. Jesus is born. Jesus is baptized, anointed. Jesus faces the enemy. Jesus goes to the cross. Everything else is for our benefit to see the effect of what the cross will do. Everything else is an illustration and a teaching of what the result of the cross and resurrection are for us. See, none of that work from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 26 is in and of itself redemptive. The redemptive work occurs at the cross. There is the preparation and then the redemptive work is at the cross. We're not redeemed because Jesus rebuked some demon. I'm not redeemed because of that. Or he walked on water. He had a lot of bread at a meal one time in the wilderness. And everybody, you know, were all excited about him. And and he raised Lazarus. All of these were portents of what will come because of his obedience. What we're seeing here is the activity of God in a mighty way based on one thing only. The obedience of a man. That's what we're seeing. The effect Of obedience. And so let's look at our lives and see where is the place of obedience in my life. Where is the place? Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the purpose of the law. He has kept the law perfectly. And because of that, we are redeemed people. See, the demoniac knew The demonic powers know Jesus' true identity and purpose and ask to be thrown into the pigs knowing that he's going to cast them out of men. He knows that. And He said, why are you doing it ahead of time? And as if to say, I'm doing it ahead of time just to show my people what I'm going to do in them once I save them, right? I'm going to do this. And of course, look at the reaction of the folks. The third miracle, chapter 9, 1 through 8. Jesus crushes Satan's authority to his enslaved people to their sin. We're born into slavery, correct? Remember we talked about that? We're incarcerated in the cell of sin. We're incarcerated in sin's cell. Only Satan has the key, and he ain't giving it to us. And only, I'm sorry, Satan has no key to, you know, I can't, whatever I was going to say. Only Jesus has the key to the cell. Only Jesus does. And getting into a boat. Boy, there's a lot of boat stuff here. I wonder if Jesus came from Chalmette. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Remember Capernaum. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Well, he's right. They are right. They are absolutely right. If they don't believe Jesus is the son of God, they are absolutely right in this. Let's be careful. We would do the same thing if someone came in here and said, your sins are forgiven. We'd be the same way. Jesus, however, knowing their thoughts. Why do you think evil thoughts in your heart? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, arise up and walk? Oh, I love this. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth. What? To do what? To forgive sins, he turns to the man and he says, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. See, that you may know, that you may know. And he arose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So Jesus comes to Capernaum. He leaves the region of the Gadarenes. Remember where the two demoniacs are. And in Luke, we get the story. Jesus is in a house, and his couple of friends have a paralytic man. You remember they get on top and they dig, uh, they tear up the roof. Can you imagine that? May I tear up your roof in order to have a ministry? Oh, yeah, there's going to be ministry here. Don't you touch my flowers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can come to my covenant group, but don't get my rugs dirty. Don't mess up my furniture. Right? Don't break anything. Yeah, right? I, mean, I would feel that way. I'm, I'm worse than that than Gene is, tell you the truth. And so what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? And when Jesus, what? Saw their faith. How can you see faith? I thought faith was something that you couldn't see. What does it mean, saw their faith? They visibly demonstrated that they trusted Jesus To minister to this man. Faith without works is dead. Somebody said that somewhere. James said it. Faith is the root, works are the fruit. The root produces the fruit, the fruit proves the root. So, you see, we were born again for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Who? Where is that from? Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians what? 3.10, remember? And so, think of this, because I think all of us have a very weakness in this area, and perhaps we in this church, and me particularly, because I do some of the teaching here, one of the things I think we, I don't do well enough, I can't say the others, is Teach the necessity of good works. The necessity of good works. You see, God the Father wanted a garden that would manifest his creative abilities. So he sent his son to create the garden. But the people in the garden disobeyed and so there was no fruit coming out of his garden so he sends his son back and the son purchases that garden with his own blood think about it with his own blood why so the father can have fruit that pleases him and then when the son does that the son sends the holy spirit back into the garden of the world and the Holy Spirit takes the seed of the word of God and begins to plant it into the people, his people, who live in this garden of the world. Why? Just to make them members of God's garden? No. To make them members of God's garden in whom God will produce by this spirit who is the gardener. By the pruning and disciplining and encouraging and watering work of the gardener. Produce a great crop, a great blossom, a great harvest. The necessity of good works. I didn't say it's nice if you produce good works. It is a necessity. Good works are not just the result of our loving God so much that we do something. Good works is the command of God that we produce that which he sent his son to purchase and die for at the cross. John fifteen eight. For in this is my Father glorified that you do what? Bear much fruit and that your fruit... Blossoms, it remains forever. This is the purpose of God. We must continually be asking our, looking at our lives and asking the Holy Spirit, what kind of fruit am i cooperating with you to produce is it pleasing to you and in what areas are you desiring to produce better fruit and more fruit or maybe even some fruit that you're not doing now this needs to be a continual pursuit of ours you see since the fall satan has exercised authority over humanity remember first john 5:19 But Jesus, the seed of the woman, has come to deliver his people from their slavery to sin. Romans 6.17 says we're enslaved to sin. How? By crushing Satan's head or the authority at the cross. Hebrews 2.14, he did what? Jesus took away Satan's ability and weapon of faith out of his hand by dying. Jesus took that weapon right out of Satan's hand at the cross. And as a result... The crippled man, he's crippled. He can't walk the walk of righteousness. Crippled people cannot be said, first, you're crippled. First, come to me and I will make you well. I I can't walk, come to me, I will make you well. He doesn't say, don't you see that every time that Jesus is doing something, he's touching an inability in us over which Satan has authority. But now, because Jesus will go to the cross, he's He's breaking all of that authority and undoing all of that inability by the power of his spirit. Jesus says, rise up and walk. Now you can walk. But we can't walk until he tells us to rise up. And rising up in this vernacular is John three. 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That's rising up. That's the Holy Spirit coming into me, healing my paralytic legs so that I can rise up and walk with God. Let me just briefly go through the next part. Jesus goes to Matthew's house. And remember what we said, rise up and walk? That's the last miracle. Then immediately Matthew gives some instruction here. As if to say, let me give you an example of rising upward walk. I was a tax collector. I was that paralytic man. I was that man in the boat who wouldn't get to the other side except for Jesus. I am these people. I was that demonically demonized man who had no will of my own to call upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus came to me while I was sitting in the tax collector's booth at the border there, taking the taxes from one side to the other, you know, that they did in, in, for Caesar. And he says, come and follow me. He didn't say, Matthew, look, Hey, look, if, you, if it so touches your heart, if you like to, man, I hope everything's going to be okay. What, he says, come, follow me. That's how he calls us into the kingdom. Come, follow me. I am here today. We're here today because Jesus said to us, what? Come and follow me. And he gave me the faith and he gave you the faith and the desire and the will and ability to say, what? Okay, here I come. So he yanks Matthew, out of this tax collecting. Then the next thing we know, there's a party going on. And there's a celebration. A celebration of life. And in the midst of the celebration, there is opposition. What are you doing celebrating? Don't you know that... How many of us have celebrated and celebrate our faith... And the work of God in us and the victories and all of a sudden Satan whispers in our lives, yeah, but do you remember what you did yesterday? Why are you celebrating? Because you said that, you thought that, you went there. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to steal away the joy of the celebration of our victory in Christ and his in me. These men are trying to take away the joy that is in this celebration that Matthew has, had, has been given, if you would, new life in Christ by this call. Matthew, how do we know Matthew was given new life? Because he got up and he left. Again, the obedience is the issue. Obey, obey, obey. Not, I will do it when I feel like it. Obey and feelings will result. And Jesus says, look, I want mercy. I want mercy rather than sacrifice. In this, Jesus, as I've heard taught before, was condemning the sacrificial system. He says, no, I want the real result of the sacrificial system to be experienced by my people. What? Mercy. I don't want you just to be a religious people and do the rote of religion. I want your religion to be faith in me. And do it because I have commanded it, and in this way, mercy comes. Mercy only comes through the shedding of the blood of the Lamb to us. And he says, that's what I want here. And then, of course, a group of John's disciples come and ask Jesus why they're not fasting. What does Jesus say? Look, while I'm here, no fasting. When I leave, you'll have opportunity for fasting. We're not going to be fasting. This is a new day. New wine. New wineskins. What verse do you think of when Jesus says new wineskins? Second Corinthians 5. 17. You're right. <laughs> if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is put away. All things have been made new. New. Now, don't be disappointed when you look into the mirror and you see that same old bag. You see, I have to, when I get up in the morning, sneak up on the mirror. Can you imagine seeing me the first thing in the morning without being prepared? The mirror is a bad reflection on me. You see? But when I look at this old body, which is going downhill moment by moment every day, all of us are going downhill, remember? best days, Judy, or what? What'd I tell your daddy when he was in the hospital? I said, Leon, the best days are ahead of you. Our best days, what? Are ahead of us. Why? Because, you see, Jesus has won the day at the cross. And in the resurrection, he has given us that day. That's a loose translation of Romans 4.25 just a loose translation of it the best day is the day he wanted the cross the bad friday for mary and these men one wound up being what good friday because of the cross of the resurrection amen so next week we'll continue